This is the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the podcast. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Really appreciate you guys tuning in this week and every week to the podcast. We've got a great episode lined up with Sohi Lee. But before that, let's talk about powerlifting. Now, we don't talk about powerlifting a lot on the podcast because there are other powerlifting specific podcasts out there, but we do compete and we are interested. And uh, this past weekend, some of the best lifters in the world descended upon San Diego, California to compete in the Kern Open, formerly known as the U.S. Open of powerlifting. And I was actually a judge both days. And boy, oh boy, what a show. So the way that they score this, I mean, there's $100,000 in total cash prizes on the line, a $50,000 purse for the person with the highest Wilkes score. Wilkes score basically compares the total amount weight of weight lifted to the body weight of the individual. Chad Penson walked away with the title here. He totaled over 11 times his body weight, 11 times his body weight. He weighed in at 198 pounds. He totaled 2,199 pounds, which included an 881 pound squat an 804-pound deadlift and a 513-pound bench press. And it was a battle. You know, him, John Hack, Dan Bell, uh, you know, these guys really going after it, trying to put up the highest total and the highest Wilkes. And uh, I believe the the winning Wilkes score was a 643, which is craziness, absolute craziness. I mean, I think my best Wilkes score is like in the low 500s, and that's not a flex <laughs> compared to Chad's 643. Uh, day two, Hunter Henderson, um, also put on a clinic in the 165 pound women's division. She squatted 295 kilos, which is 650 pounds. She benched 325 and deadlifted 573, a bunch of all-time world records in there. And it, it did seem like every third attempt, not necessarily just for her, but for a lot of the other competitors, oh, just another all-time world record, which uh, again, was cool to be a part of. And uh, if you're you know, interested in powerlifting, you were probably tuning in. Uh, and if you didn't know this was going on, well, now you do. And you can check out some of the highlights. Uh, I believe they still have all the live streams up on YouTube. If that's something you wanna watch. Really cool uh, to see great lifters, great lifting. And uh, I think that puts us at our quota for discussing powerlifting. Just, uh, it was fun. All of you guys that tagged me in the live stream when you were watching, that was funny. Just seeing my faces randomly <laughs> when, uh, you know, people were getting trap slapped or whatever. I was getting caught in a plume of chalk or ammonia or something. That was that was pretty funny. So thanks for doing that. But uh, yeah, really cool, cool weekend. Um, other announcements. So we got a new article series over on the website. Claire Zai has written a five-part series on the menstrual cycle and performance and also uh, programming implications that's over on our website. Check that out. We also have a ton of other resources uh, to support your health and fitness journey, whether that be from a programming standpoint or a pain and rehab standpoint and much, much more. Check that out on our website. Also, just FYI, this podcast has just surpassed 6 million downloads total, which is Cool. So thank you for that. Really appreciate you guys tuning in, sharing it with your friends. That's awesome. Please continue to do that. Now, if you have specific questions, you can ask them on our forum, which you can also access through the website. So just go to barbellmedicine.com, click on forum, register. You can ask us questions there. We have specific pain and rehab uh, forums, also like nutrition forums, medical questions, etc can uh, handle your concerns there, or you can go to our Facebook group, just search Barbell Medicine. It's a private group, but uh, you know we're closing in on just over 15,000 members. We'd love you to be a part of the community. Um, or you can send us an email to media at barbellmedicine.com and maybe we'll answer your question on the YouTube channel or uh, right here on the podcast. Uh, we're always looking for new ideas, new uh, uh, questions that people have uh, out there that are really important. So really appreciate you guys participating. And uh, yeah, we can answer your question right here. Okay, this week 
is episode 138. We're talking with Sohi Lee. She has a very, very extensive academic and practical pedigree. I'll let her uh, give you all the details about that when we start the podcast. Uh, we're talking about weight management and practical behavior changes to help support those uh, weight management goals. Uh, so we'll talk about that. We also talk about differences in programming for men and women and much, much more. So without any further ado, let's hop in to this week's podcast. All right, so he, if somebody recognized you in an elevator or the supermarket or gym, how would you introduce yourself to them? Gosh, well, first of all, it's funny because I actually don't really like being recognized in real life. It's like very uncomfortable for me, uh, but it has happened a number of times. I would probably say at this point, I'm uh, primarily an online fitness coach, an educator, and I'm also a PhD student. So I think that's probably the best summary, but um, most of what I do at this point is done, conducted through social media platforms and Instagram is my most active platform, but I uh, do a lot of myth busting with different fitness ideas, nutrition concepts, um, promoting mental health, things like that. Um, and also trying to, I guess, pave the way for more women in the industry to, to have a voice. I love it. Yeah. So we're here with Sohi Lee of Sohi Fit, uh, e of Eat, Lift, Thrive fame. Um, <laughs> just a brief additional background because uh, the Barbell Medicine audience is like, yo, what are her credentials? So in addition to being a PhD student, are you with, are you with Helms? Are you like working with Eric Helms? Because he's in Auckland too, right? Yeah. Eric Helms is my primary supervisor. Yes. So I, um, so credentials, I um, got my bachelor's degree from Stanford in 2012 in human biology. And this is for a long time, I thought I was going to go the pre-med route, quit that, didn't like it, fell in love with fitness. Um, and then I started my own business as, when I was a senior in, in college, uh, mostly actually as a side thing. I did not expect it to turn into a full-time career. I did not know at the time that uh, building a career primary online in fitness was even a viable option because I think it was so new compared to almost, you know, it's so common now, but back then it was just a foreign, very new idea. Um, but I ended up a being able to build up an online business at the time, primarily through online coaching. Um, I was also a certified personal trainer. And so I was doing that for a while, uh, creating educational content, blogging, writing for different publications and so on. Uh, four years later, I went back to school to get my master's degree in psychology. Um, and this was in large part couple of reasons. One, I was I realized the importance of psychology and like behavior understanding behavior change in the role of in the role of fitness. And I felt like it was not well understood and not enough people were talking about it. And the second reason I went back was that I did not feel confident reading research papers and did not know how to interpret any of the statistics in the research that I was reading. So I, I didn't, I wanted to gain that confidence and I wanted to be able to uh, read a paper and come to a conclusion on my own because I was learning that, you know, sometimes the authors can be like, well, based off these results, here's what we think. And I want to be able to say, well, actually based off this is these results, I think something a little bit different. Um, so I did that, graduated in 2018. Uh, I went to Arizona State University for this one. Uh, my master's thesis was in the psychology of eating behavior. And then now, um, I am a little bit over a year into my PhD program uh, through the University, Auckland University of Technology under the supervision of Eric Helms. And uh, I am studying uh, sports science, specifically the role 
the impact of circuit training versus progressive overload-based strength training in women. So we're looking at both psychological and physiological outcomes, and it's something I've been wanting to do for about three years. So I'm really excited that it's finally starting to come to fruition. So right now I am right in the middle of uh, cleaning up my PhD written proposal. I already gave my presentation a couple of weeks ago, and once this gets officially approved, I will uh, qualify for PhD candidate status. Um, and then besides that, I'm also a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the NSCA. So that's those are my credentials. <laughs> yeah, if you were looking for a way to establish street cred via the academic route, uh, listeners, that that's how you would do it. You would go get a hard science degree, then you would get additional training to shore up any gaps. Lots that, of school. Yes. Yeah. You would recognize the importance of behavioral change early on and get <laughs> expertise there. And then after you've established yourself, you would go an additional uh, for additional education, particularly with the pet project, uh, to learn more about the field that you kind of create carved your niche into. So, uh, yeah, you could, you could do that guys, just get all, all the degrees. It's that's, but that's why, one of the reasons why she's on the barbell medicine podcast, like, you know, I've always been super pro like formal education as I mean, that's pretty obvious, but at the same time, I also know that there's a lot of learning that occurs outside of the school setting as well. So I'm pro like both kind of doing both. Or even if you choose not to go the formal education route, at least keep up the learning. Yeah. And she does both. She actually lifts too. So if you ha- don't follow Sohi, if, you, if you're un- unfamiliar with her, you can check out her social media stuff. We'll link all that in the description below. But yeah, she actually trains. She lifts. She's active. She's not just uh, a bookworm. Yeah. So we could ch- we'll talk about that here in a little bit. All right. So we're going to kick this off here. We're going to talk about weight management. Now, this is obviously something that you've worked with people one-on-one with, you've done presentations on. Um, and I think a lot of our listenership, I and mean, we've got done multiple podcasts on different aspects of weight management, whether it be energy intake versus energy expenditure and all that other sort of stuff. I think we could take this a different route. Uh, route. We don't need to cover calories in, calories out and all that that sort of stuff. People are pretty up on that. I think where people, the disconnect is, is like, all right, we know that we have targets for energy intake and energy expenditure and, uh, you know, and particularly balancing those things based on our goals. But the actual dietary behaviors, the food environment, the eating environment, all that other sort of stuff kind of gets plays second fiddle. It, mainly people focus on the targets rather than the behaviors designed to achieve or attain those targets. Uh Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about some dietary behaviors that you find really, really important uh, with respect to managing energy intake. Okay. So, oh, so many different angles that we can approach this from. The the biggest thing from a behavioral standpoint, and I I love this topic because you're absolutely right that when it comes to like calories in, calories out, a lot of people time, a lot of times people will focus on what is their calorie intake or like how many calories are they burning throughout the day, but they're not focusing on what are the actual behaviors you are doing every day to meet this goal? And is this actually a behavior that you can keep up for the long haul? And so um, one of the biggest things people can do, and it seems so simple, but you'll be surprised at how many people do not do this, is simply get into a regular eating pattern and whatever that means for the individual. So most people, probably somewhere between three or four um, actual meals a day, is going to be great, but not just uh, meal frequency, but also meal timing should be roughly the same. So I like to say be specific but flexible with your behavior goals. So if you say these are the behaviors I've specified, um, build in some flexibility. So if you you know miss your 
9 a.m. breakfast time and it's 9.25, who cares? That's not, that's really not a big deal. The point is you have a goal and, you know, you're aiming roughly to get in that direction. So regular eating pattern, of course, um, is the best way, uh, I think, to make regulating your calorie intake a lot easier. So um, most, a lot of people have very sporadic eating patterns where one day they eat five meals, the next day they eat two meals, um, or their protein intake is super inconsistent across the meals. What if you just had, you know, depending on the size of the individual and your protein targets between, I don't know, 30 to 50 to 60 grams of protein in every meal that you had, always make that the center of your meal and then uh, figure out how many meals you want to eat across the throughout the day and just kind of repeat that. And a lot of times this will mean not every meal has to be life-changing. Not every meal has to be super creative, right? A lot of times, like most of my meals, I'm like, this is really ugly, but it does the job, you know? And uh, just whatever that you're happy to eat on a regular basis, don't mind like oats, whatever, potatoes, rice, whatever it is, eat more of those and don't worry about getting super fancy and making things super complicated. So I think um, in many ways, the more you can simplify your everyday routine, um, just to the point where it's not overwhelming for you to do uh, most, if not all days, it'll be far, far easier to actually meet your ultimate out- outcome goal. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a simple trick if you will, to get a bunch of knock-on effects regarding that ultimately help control energy intake. I I agree. It's like uh, if you eat the same time or similar times each day with similar components, you're you're better able to sort of not only regulate your energy intake, but also respond to hunger cues and appetite cues. And your eating environment is likely to be very similar on a regular basis. And you sort of get in a groove rather than could you eat at different times and different amount all through you could it just requires a higher level of management actively to like constrain your yeah. energy intake because things can right you know, the the idea that you're going to be able to regulate yourself within 100 or 200 calories every day without a lot of tracking and effort is highly unlikely so just a yeah, the timing and the pattern uh, tend to tend to play out. And in addition, there's other stuff we keep learning, like chrononutrition, for example, that you know may have a, an impact on outcomes. So that's a one of these pearls that I was really hoping to get uh, from this podcast. It, is yeah, meal timing. You know, people on the internet, particularly in the evidence based community, I think some of them have swung too far in a direction like, oh, meal timing doesn't really matter. And it's like, all right, well, if we're looking at like a controlled research setting and you control for every other variable, it might not matter that much, but in a free living environment, oh boy, <laughs> things can get crazy when you're, you know, yeah, three ver- meals a day versus one meal a day versus five meals. And then people, um, it's really hard to be mindful of their intake if t- so many different variables are changing because they're like, wow, this meal is way bigger than it was yesterday, but I'm eating less meals. So it's probably, it's probably fine. It's like, it's probably not fine. Yeah. The other thing too is, uh, in many ways, the less of a routine you have in your eating behaviors and the less, the less autopilot you're on with that, that means every day you have to put extra cognitive effort into what am I eating? How much am I eating? Et cetera, et cetera. And that's really draining. Um, and that's going to take away from, mental bandwidth you could be devoting to other areas of your life you know so it's kind of like uh you know the steve jobs 
I'm sure we've all heard about how he would wear the same outfits every day to reduce the decision making. So it's kind of the same idea where if you already eat more or less the same things at roughly the same times every day, it frees up so much mental energy to devote to other areas of your life. And you'll find the nutrition aspect, at least, you know, here to be less fatiguing. Yeah, we uh, we kind of talked about this t- concept of like dietary RPE, where it's like, if you have so many variables that you're trying to actively manage, your dietary RPE is high, like, uh, versus if things yeah. are kind of on autopilot, or and if you're familiar with like Kahneman's, you know, thinking fast and slow, if thing if if your food environment, your food timing is relatively similar, you don't really have to think of this long, drawn out cognitive process. Right. It's just like an automatic decision, right. kind of. Yeah, autopilot. I like that. All right. So eat it roughly the same times every day. Eat roughly the same amount of meals per day. Focus on protein. I love those eating behaviors. Uh, With respect to like the eating environment, food environment, any tips or tricks that you think are uh, important for folks to take home? Yes. Okay. So I know that uh, changing your eating environment is going to be more feasible for some than others. For example, if you're living alone, obviously a lot easier to be in full control versus if you have a family with young kids and they want their snacks lying around, that's going to be a lot trickier. Um, However, altering your environment is one of the easiest ways to change your behavior without relying on self-control. So, um, you know, there's this idea of ego depletion, which has been going around for years, which is the idea that self-control is a limited uh, construct. And there has been some debate in the research about, is it actually limited? There's research by Carol Dweck, whose lab I did some research in for one semester as a freshman at Stanford, and uh, she was super intimidating, but nice. Um, anyway, to me. Um, so she, there was some research that showed, I don't know if that came out right, but anyway, all good things, um, that if you were told, if you were taught that self-control was a limited resource, you behaved in that way. Uh, whereas if you were taught that self-control is unlimited, you were more likely to continue to persist on a task for longer. Um, so, so they're like, okay, so maybe it has something to do with what your beliefs are about whether self-control is or is not limited. So, and then there was this big like replication study they did a few years ago and they found that the two studies that they were testing you know they're like oh ego depletion according to this is not real anyway the point is whether or not it is or is not real to me isn't really relevant because it at least feels that way right it feels self-control feels fatiguing the more you have to use it throughout the day that's why a lot of times at the end of the day or you know the, the weekend or the end of the month end of the year is when people tend to uh fall off the wagon so to speak on their on their on their goals and um so the less we can rely on self-control, the less we have to tap into self-control, which is, I think, the opposite of what I see a lot of health and fitness professionals promoting. They're like, oh, it's all about, you know, you got to try harder and use more self-control. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, the opposite. If you can minimize your reliance on self-control and just be really smart and very judicious about how and when you do use self-control, you will be much more successful. So if you can change your environment, certain behaviors become automatically much easier. And interestingly, and I know this is not feasible for most people, but actually moving is one of the best ways to completely alter your everyday behaviors because it's a drastic change in environment, right? Moving to a new home or going to a hotel or whatever. Um, But even things like anything that, whatever your target behaviors are, how can you change your environment to make them easier to do? Uh, whatever the, any unwanted behaviors, make it more inconvenient. Make it harder to do, more annoying. 
even if it's something as simple as putting the chips at, you know, the top pantry in the way back. So you have to grab a ladder and, you know, reach up there, climb up there to get it. That's a lot of times going to be enough of a barrier for you to be like, it's not worth it. And you'll opt for the easier option. So make the target behavior always the easier thing to do. So rearrange how different foods are placed in your home. Even if it's like the water is at the front of your fridge and like the sodas, if you have sodas or at the back or like get rid of them altogether if, if you can do that. Um, so these are very easy ways to, to, to change your behavior. Yep. I agree. And there's the good data backing that up, particularly from a food environment or eating environment standpoint. Yes. If you're, yeah, particularly with highly palatable, energy dense foods, if they're at the ready, they're in sight. Oh boy. Yes. People are likely to do absurd things or, uh, and even, uh, with respect to actually like portion sizes and, and stuff, but, uh, that's for another podcast. I think we can go really down the rabbit hole uh, with that. No, I love that. Yes. There's a lot of research. Yeah. Adjusting the eating environment, uh, can be useful. Another thing, and I'll get your take on this is actually, I, I like to tell people to try to eat undistracted, meaning like you're, and, and try to have a habitual yes. eating environment, meaning like you're going to commit or at least try to eat most of your meals at the dining table, sitting down, your phone's nowhere to be found, your TV's not on, and you're just eating. I, I The idea is that you're able to more readily respond to certain cues with respect to eating, uh, you're l- less mindless eating in a way, and I know that this can get fuzzy when you go into the research. Um, do you find, is that something that you, you think you're on board with? you find that you're recommending people do that regularly? Absolutely. I mean, there is absolutely research showing that, for example, when people are at like the movie theater, right there, and they have a huge tub of popcorn, they're more likely to eat uh, a lot more of it. And s- some of it has to do with the fact that they're distracted. Some of it has to do with the size of the tub that they're given. Mm-hmm. But yes, absolutely. Just not watching TV, not scrolling through your phone um, as a general rule of thumb is yeah. is huge for that. Which I think is is hard to do for a lot of people nowadays, especially because, you know, what else what else are we doing at home? <laughs> right. It's easy to like scroll through your phone and scroll through Instagram while you're eating now, but we're like, okay, if you put that down, actually pay attention to what you're eating, maybe you would have realized that you were done six bites ago. Yeah, exactly. You know, and you're just eating it because it's still there. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Same thing with other social cues when you're eating with other people. And uh, yeah, so I like uh, this game I like to play when I'm eating out with folks. Everyone wants to Instagram the picture of the food, particularly if it looks tasty or the aesthetic is high. Do it. Take the picture, post it, whatever. And then you put your all put your phones in the center. And the idea is like you're engaging with these folks socially without, uh, again, these sort of distractions. Yeah. So, uh, and, and But also try to be cognizant of like just because they're still eating doesn't mean you have to keep eating. Um, and so some people will, again, naturally. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Social influence. Yeah. 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 I, my it's favorite. huge. Yeah. So it's like if you're one of those people who maybe has a hard time with that and you're actively engaged in this sort of lifestyle change and you want to lose weight it's high on your priority list, uh, maybe you get the to-go box early on and you kind of sock some of that away, again, making it harder for you to continue eating. Um, all of this kind of centers around the idea that like hunger is influenced by a lot of other factors than just your biology, than just like, Hey, your need to eat, consume energy or whatever. So, um, I love these, I love these sort of, again, behavioral change targets that we're focusing on rather than the science of like energy intake, like, well, well, what are the, (laughs) yeah, well, that's right. And that's why a lot of times I'm like this study, the findings are fine, but 
it doesn't really translate to the real world because there's all these variables that you've completely taken out of the equation. That's not how real life works. And when it comes to eating behavior, like, yes, as you said, calories in, calories out obviously matters. But have you considered the fact that uh, the social influence on what and how much you're going to eat. Think back to the last time you were with a group of friends and every single person ordered an alcoholic drink. You're probably going to order a drink as well. Uh, whereas like, even if you did want the drink, no one else wanted to drink, you probably would, would skip it, right? Or if everyone's reaching for the bread basket, you're probably more likely to, exactly. There's all of these things that that play into um, it. So just think, saying things like, well, this is your meal plan or just try harder, I find completely unhelpful and Ugh, I hate it. uh they don't take into yeah they don't take into consideration like most people are not living in a bubble nope. well maybe right now we are for yeah. but <laughs> <Right>. you know <laughs> i try to be more is this actually practical sure yeah, yeah. I, I i despise the just try harder or you know have better motivation or more willpower because that stuff ebbs and flows you know, I do think on some level it's important. It's important, and um, you know, I want to leverage it as much as possible. But I don't want to tax somebody too much to say, hey, "Look, the intervention that we're trying, the behaviors that we're trying are in. You can't do them right now because they're not easy enough. I want to make them so easy that you don't have to try. Let's make that the automatic behavior. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So I love all this. I think we could focus. We could talk way longer on different weight management pearls, but I, I, uh, I enjoy, I enjoy this. So we're trying to eat at similar times, similar amounts, uh, per day, uh, focus on protein. Um, think about your environment to the extent that you can modify that. And to the, you know, you're not going to find a tip or trick that's going to change your energy intake, you know, by 25%, just one trick, but you might find 10 to 20 things that'll change your energy intake by one or 2% and try yeah, focus on the things you can change, make incremental progress. Yeah, I love it. Um, cool. Okay, we're going to move on into the differences between men and women with respect to coaching. Now, I think I don't want to speak for you, but I, I do think that most of your coaching client, like your clientele tend to be mostly women. Are they all women? Are you like 90%? Not all, vast, vast majority. Um, I also have a team of coaches. I've got four, four coaches who work for my uh, my coaching business, and I have four women, th three women, one okay. man actually, and then we have a small handful of of male clients. Yeah. Okay, great. So you got some, and obviously with previous coaching experience, you've worked with guys, coached guys before. So uh, the big question is: Are there substantial like exercise programming differences that you? or your coaching staff are making right out of the gate just to, based on the fact that someone's a man or a woman? Uh, and if so, what are they? So I actually don't necessarily program differently based on whether it's a man or a woman. I base it more off of what their actual goals are because, you know, there are men, for example, who really want to focus on their glutes. So if it's, sure. you know, if that's the case, I would be giving them more like hip thrust, glute bridges, you know, upper glute work, things like that. And um, so I rely very heavily on what is your personal preference? What is your ultimate mm -hmm. fitness goal? Uh, what is your preferred training split? If you have one, what is your preferred training mm -hmm. frequency? And then I work with that. So even if they say like, you know, I want to do a body part split five days a week. That's not my preferred way of doing things. But if that's what you like, I'm more, I will do that for you. Um, but then of course you have little things like maybe guys tend to want to focus on their traps more or their calves more. Whereas I don't think I've had a single 
female clients so far say like they care about any direct trap exercises, for example. So little (laughs) things like that, I would say. Um, And then I know there is some research showing that women uh, tend to recover a little bit faster than men for like between working sets of training. Um, I still actually like having women rest a good amount. And this Mm -hmm. is to, you know, allow them to focus on progressive overload based strength training so they can continue to set PRs week after week. Uh, So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think even my rest periods actually, despite what the research says, at least for now, is typically sense to be the same where you go like longer rest periods for heavier sets, obviously, and then they get shorter as the reps go up, generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the way I kind of wrap all the research together in a, in a nice little bow in my brain so I can understand it and function in the world, because, you, you know, obviously you do get disparate findings and you're like, ah, how do I make sense? You have this dissonance is that a lot of the findings that are uh, that where we do see differences between the uh, between sexes, it, to me, seem almost like artifacts of either small sample sizes, short study, like duration, and and, and then just inter individual differences. So we expect this wide range yeah. of you know uh, people uh, responses to a given training stress, and so yeah you might get a cohort of women who respond a certain way and a cohort of men that respond another way. But like when you compile and, you know, do a, a back of the envelope meta-analysis on all these things, you're like, maybe it's not that different. And in fact, that's kind of where I lean towards. It's like, yeah, maybe men and women yeah. on balance have different preferences, different sort of uh, with either exercises they want or body parts they want to emphasize or training goals. And yeah, so maybe you end up in practice programming differently, um, but it's not based on their sex or, or gender in this case. Uh, it's based on their goals. So you're just programming for the individual, which is, I thought when I first kind of, again, tied this together, I was like, oh, pff, makes total sense. People are going to love this. But the pushback has been absurd, meaning that people are like, oh, no, women are completely different organisms. They need completely different training. Everybody knows that. And I'm like, do they though? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and so I'm just like uh, trying to get that kind of as a central paradigm that we're working for has been uh, interesting. And it seems like that your experience has almost reflected that. In fact, people do tend, you do tend to program and coach folks the same just based on their preferences though. Yep. Absolutely. Squat centering around the squat, the deadlift, different variations of thereof, bench press, chin up, et cetera. And, um, I, one thing I did notice though, that I found super interesting was back when I was training clients a lot more in person, cause I had a, a studio in, in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, when I would have my clients coming in and the, the training clients at that time, they were all women. I definitely noticed that they didn't push themselves as hard on their own. And, I think there were a couple reasons behind this. One, it was their lack of confidence is in, I'm not sure if my form is right, so I don't want to push myself too hard in case I get injured. And it was sure. a matter of having someone they trusted, a qualified professional, myself saying, actually, your form is really good. You could probably add about 50 plus pounds. And then we'd, we'd go way up and they're like, oh my God, that felt great. Um, so I think some of it is self-limiting, maybe subconsciously. And the other was, I wonder how much of it is their preconceived beliefs about what they've been told that women should not be lifting heavy or like they're, they're lifting light because they think yeah, they should like be like a social light. dynamic kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. And that's actually part yeah. of what I'm trying to uh, dig into more as, as part of my PhD is understanding better what are women's uh, current perceptions about strength training. What is What are the main barriers behind why they are either not strength training or if they are strength training, why are they not pushing themselves hard? 
I'd like to know more about that. Uh, yeah, well, this is a perfect segue into the next topic. I mean, we can just roll right into it. If So before the research is done, so maybe we'll have you back on after you've kind of wrap, wrapped everything up and uh, tell us what you found. Yeah, but, maybe in a couple, hopefully in two years from now, I'll have, I'll be done. You'll have the, yeah. you'll have the <laughs> answers. But, you know, you've been involved in the industry for quite some time and you, you certainly have some perspective on this. What, what are the main barriers uh, based on, you know, what you know right now uh, to women participating in resistance training? Okay. So there are, um, unfortunately, there's actually not that much research on women in strength training, which is why I'm trying to change that. Uh, but there have been a couple of studies, sur- surveys done on on women asking, and again, keeping in mind what you said before, sometimes the sample size is biased or, you know, it's not representative of the entire women population. Uh, but it does look like the social barrier is a huge one. It's the, I'm afraid of being judged at the gym, which is a valid concern because just scrolling through social media, you can see it happening where women and people in general are mocked for the way they exercise or the fact that they're really, put in quotes, really weak, things like that. Uh, and it's enough to where even if it hasn't happened to you directly, you see someone else doing what you might be doing, being made fun of, and that's enough for you to be like, this is why I don't go to the gym. I will never step foot into, into right. a gym because of that. And I've had many, many women actually say that to me or even say, I quit the gym after this one experience that I had where someone at the gym was not very nice to me. And so I think that is a really big one. Um, another big one, what is the, uh, again, the fear of getting bulky, which is another just really common common misconception with lifting, uh, still very much prevalent. So um, they they want to look a certain way and they are taught and told for whatever reason that, you know, sticking to the light weights and the, the high reps is that's what's going to help achieve the toned look, which is what so many women are after. And so they, they shy away from embracing like true, you know, true progressive overload-based strength training, uh, which I think is really unfortunate because, you know, there's so many benefits to actually pushing close to failure that uh, men and women alike can 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 uh, can experience. So those would be the main things. The other thing too is that they simply don't know what to do. They're like, I want to try strength training. I just don't know how to use this equipment. And again, it goes back to again, I don't want to look stupid fumbling with this machine. Or I have a I have a pair of dumbbells in my hands. What do I do now? Yeah. Yeah, I'd be curious to know, like, I assume that a lot of those attitudes and, and, and thoughts and beliefs are probably shared between the different genders. I, I, I certainly agree that there's probably maybe mo- women feel that way either more strongly or or there's a higher fraction of women. But I, I also think that men and women probably differ, like differ in how they deal with those issues. Men being like, maybe in general, like, yeah, well, I'm still going to try anyway, or I feel more comfortable in this space at baseline. So I'm just, you know, whatever, it's going to be fine. Or like they're just tolerate the, the maybe intimidating environment by saying, well, I'll just be aggressive back. Like as part of their, the, you know, how they, their, their personality or their attitude. I, I don't know that to be the case, but that's, I'm just trying to figure out like why, you know, it seems like the bigger barrier for women. Okay. One other point I'll bring, I'll bring up and I've experienced this too myself, and this is coming from someone who has been lifting for 13 plus years. I have experienced this even more recently too, where there are times when you, I am the only woman on the training floor. You look around, there's, it's all men. So that's another thing where other men, even if they do have some hesitations, like you mentioned, um, they don't face the barrier of, 
I'm the only woman in here. Uh, not just that, but I've had so many clients and people online telling me about their personal experiences of, let's say they're on a bench resting between sets. A guy comes up and starts stripping their plates. And he goes, oh, I thought you were just doing uh, crunches on this. I didn't realize you were actually benching. And it's this 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 idea that uh, women don't deserve to take up space on the gym floor. And that's happened to me when I was like squatting, where this guy at Gold's Gym actually in Venice was very, <laughs> very visibly annoyed that I was taking up a squat rack when he wanted to squat. And uh, he was like hovering very close to me and obviously, you know, trying to make me feel uncomfortable, getting me to leave early to the point where I was like, should I just not do my last set? You know? And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. But then he wins. Like, that's the whole point of what he's trying to get me to do. Yeah. So absolutely. Women, I think, generally feel a lot more unwelcome in the gym. And that's why some women really like having the women's only sections of, of certain gyms. I think those can be really helpful to remove that. But they like there are enough men making it a really unpleasant experience for women when they do try to lift. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm hopeful that men, particularly those listening to this podcast, aren't doing it on purpose, right? But I think a lot of our, our actions and a lot of uh, the sort of resulting outcomes from whatever hundreds of years or thousands of years of, you know, social sort of learning and, and conditioning have led us to, you know, probably play a role. If you go walk into a gym and it's all dudes and you're a guy, even if you don't know what the heck you're doing, maybe you feel more comfortable. Similarly, if you're a woman, maybe you feel less comfortable yeah. uh, with the same yeah. sort of level of knowledge. Uh, so yeah, that's, there's definitely something going on there. And, uh, but if you're listening to this and you're, you know, again, we're 75% dude, as far as our listenership, it's like, we, we can be part of, uh, the change here. And, and because again, yes, I've been stressing please. this over these, <laughs> I've been stressing this over these podcasts. It's like, it would be better if we got more women to train, not only from like a health perspective, not only from an economics perspective with respect to like, again, long-term health outcomes and prevention. Uh, but for a, from a gym perspective, look, I want more gyms to train at. I want better equipment. I want you know more squat racks. So how do we do that? You get more people doing all that stuff. Uh, you know, 51 or 50.8% of the world's population is women. So we're gonna have to get them involved uh, too. So um, yeah, there's definitely barriers. I'm really excited to see what, where your research goes and kind of what what that ends up uh, sussing out, but it does, it does seem like it's changing or like it has been changing in a positive fashion. Yes. Do you get that? Like, do you think that that's. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like I would say, um, well, according to the couple of research papers I've read, there are about 10 to 15% more women, uh, strength training regularly. And by regularly, we mean twice a week or more on a, on a consistent basis compared to about 10 years ago. Um, so definitely even back in 2008, when I first started lifting, the other women I would see on the training room floor versus now, huge difference, huge difference. Um, but I still think, you know, it's still not enough, right? So it's kind of like the same idea where even if you and I and other people are out here very loudly busting different fitness myths left and right, there's still a lot of other people perpetuating those myths, you know, because it's, it's kind of like they're both happening at the same time. But I do think that the more women and other men we have um, supporting women in the gym, the the more we can change this for the better. Yeah. So so things have been on the on the rise. Uh, another cool little stat that I I really have appreciated, particularly being a powerlifter. So in the USAPL, which is the biggest federation in the United States, uh, I think actually maybe the world even, but 
uh, again, that's another podcast talking about powerlifting. I competed, I think, once or twice. USA, in, yeah. There you go. All right, cool. Once so do, now yeah. it's a powerlifting podcast. Well, hashtag powerlifting. Um, <laughs> so back, back in 2014, admittedly, when the sport was smaller than it is today, uh, there were about four men for every one female member in the USAPL. And now it's two men for every one woman. Uh, uh, Very cool. So it's it, we're definitely moving in a direction that is more equitable. It seems like as far as participation, although uh, you know there, we still have room to grow. I guess I'm, I'm more curious. What do you think has moved the needle? Like, what do you think has actually like got the ball rolling and gotten more women into training? Because I think if we have if we if, if we if we can say, hey, this looks to be like improving things. Here's where we can keep pushing on, keep leveraging. Yeah, I think media has played a huge role. Uh, specifically like social media, of course. And more and more women now are posting their workouts and being like, here's what I did today. Here's what I pulled off the floor. And here's my new PR, squat PR, et cetera. Um, I think that's been a really cool thing. Um, and I, I, I honestly think if it weren't for social media, we would not, we would have way fewer women lifting weights. So um, just using myself as, as an example, one of my main goals with my social media platforms is to encourage more women to lift weights. And I try to do that by making it more accessible to people saying, you know, everyone can lift. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to be at a certain strength level to start, um, which I think are the many, some of the hesitations that women have in their head. They're like, oh, I'm not strong enough or like, I don't look the part yet or whatever. And I'm like, you know, it doesn't matter. Just get on the training floor. We can always regress and exercise as much as we need to uh, for, for, so that you can do it now. And it's about building your self-efficacy and building your confidence so that you are willing to come back again and again. So I would say probably I would put money on the fact that social media has single-handedly been the biggest driving factor of getting more women to, to lift. Yeah, no, I agree. And particularly like the co like the, the coinciding explosion of women in, in strength sports or in barbell sports. I mean, CrossFit, for example, like that's its rise to prominence yeah. that paralleled a lot of the social media stuff. And so you're actually, you're visibly seeing athletic women doing things. And then from that, you see people who, who are trying to get to that point or, you know, at least involved in a similar community. And so this community sort of support, I think is, is huge. And so I think if you're a woman and you're listening to this, someone forwarded to you, shoving it down your throat, like, Hey, sorry, thank you for listening this far though. That's great. Po- po- <laughs> one, we would love for you to go to the gym, bug one of your friends to take you to the gym Yes. Two capture it, picture, video, whatever. It doesn't even have to be you doing the thing. It could be just the picture of the weights. If you're like, I'm not comfortable, whatever, just capture it and post it somewhere. If you've got a private girl gang group, your group chat, whatever, I don't know. Just the, the whole thing is to yeah. normalize this, right? Like to the extent that it's, it's normal to see a woman uh, squatting, deadlifting, even if it's a heavy weight or whatever. Yes. That's like, I think a huge, a huge, a huge thing. And in addition to, uh, again, just make giving up more opportunities right for for women to to participate in this stuff so whether that be having separate women's classes for folks who are like new or or whatever or just making the gym environment so inviting and so accessible which also works for like new men lifters too and maybe intimidated yeah that would be if i if i ever have a gym again which i hope to one day in a few years that would be my goal is to make a gym that's super inclusive and just have a um, very strict no tolerance policy for any kind of bullying or harassment or any of that stuff yeah yeah 
Yeah, I see people online acting in very strange ways that would be incompatible with an accepting gym environment. And I'm like, why? You want, look, we're already on a, a fringe activity, right? Like the idea, if you went out to the gen pop and you said, yeah, I'm going to go deadlift a one RM today. My eyes are going to look like they're going to bug out of my head. It's going to be really hard and whatever. And they go, nah, I don't want that. But we get it. We all are like, yeah, we, and we want to be supportive of you. So let's do that rather than be like, nah, this isn't for you or or berate somebody from their for their form or technique. It doesn't really, like, yeah. what's the point? It, it can't make you feel that much better, right? Like you see a person who's arching a lot on a bench press and you're like, you're going to snap your shit. And it's like- Oh, every time, every time. <laughs> it's like, one, no, you're not. Two, but how is this <sighs> yeah. helpful? How is this helpful? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cool. Yeah, I agree. the the social social media and then the um, uh, this sort of community aspect. So I would really try to leverage that until your research is published and you find out something else works, and then we'll <laughs> then we'll do that too. Social support is huge. It's a huge component of getting um, not just women but people in general to, to come back to the gym. Is uh, like even having like group classes, or even if you're part of an online training program where you have a separate you know community where you can be like what did you guys think of today's workout? And you can like commiserate to get, you know, that is huge is absolutely. Cause it feels like you belong, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For any sort of behavioral change, to be fair, we could be talking about smoking cessation. We could talk about dietary change. Yes. We could, obviously yes. we're talking about exercise, but any sort of community approach like is helpful, which is another thing I think CrossFit got right. It's like, yeah, we're going to lure all you guys into these classes. That is you're going to take the classes absolutely. together with the same people each time. Yeah. And then you're going to be homies. And do it together. Probably the greatest thing about CrossFit is that exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think that's been super helpful. Now, the the hard question is, how can we? And I say we, the proverbial we, that's me, men. How can we help? So what are some things that we do wrong? Uh, maybe it's on social media, and then maybe in person. Like, what can we do better to to help keep furthering furthering this? Okay. Goodness. <laughs> so many things, honestly. Oh, yeah. what do I talk about? Okay, so I think the biggest thing is um, there's always going to be problematic people on on regardless of gender, right, who are making things more unpleasant and more difficult um, and very discouraging to, to other people who may have thoughts about wanting to get into lifting weights and don't. Um, but I think overall, just kind of holding each other to a standard and – being able to say like, you know, to your guy friends, Hey, that was not cool. Like don't film her lifting to make fun of her. Don't take a picture of her while she's working out. Like this happens. It's creepy. It's gross. And instead of just sitting by and be like, well, I'm not the one who did it. So why should I do anything? You have to be part of the solution and say, you know, stand up to that kind of behavior. You don't have to be loud about it, but just be like, Hey, you know, how about next time we focus on our own workout and leave them alone and not be not be that kind of person. Uh, I think that alone can, can be huge because, um, you know, I see people posting on Facebook and Instagram, like, Oh my God, I saw this person at the gym today and I got a video. What are they even doing? LOL. Let's make fun of them. And I'm like, that's just not the environment. Like maybe you don't, you have no idea why they're doing that exercise. Right. Or like if someone doesn't look the part, I put this in quotes, look the part, is that reason for you to mock them? Because maybe they've already lost a hundred pounds. Right. You don't know what, you don't, you don't know what's going on with their story. And so, yeah, absolutely. Just being part of the change and actually actively doing something about anything, any inappropriate behavior that you see. Um, Because people, I feel like 
if women stand up to men, that's one thing. It's great. It's one thing. But I think if men are also standing up to other men, um, engaging in inappropriate behavior, it's even more powerful. It's even more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'm not asking anybody to go police other folks, but at the same time, it's right. like, it, particularly in the gym, that's your community. You're actively participating in it. You're, for many of you and me included, that's my protected time. That's my safe space. That's my, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that in a negative light, but that's, I cherish my time in the gym. I cherish that environment. And to the degree I can be a positive influence on that environment. Oh man, I'm yeah. going to take it, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think making your gym environment a better place, full stop, do that. Also to, to the extent that you can, you are a social change agent in your social circle and you can not only normalize f- women resistance training, but also encourage them and provide more opportunities for them to do so, like do it again. You guys, everybody listening to this podcast knows a woman who's not actively engaging in resistance training. And if you're listening to this podcast, it's the barbell medicine podcast. Chances are <laughs> you're into lifting. I would, ju- I'd try to make it a point to, to, uh, get, you know, take somebody to the gym this week, you know, teach them how to teach them how to uh, squat, put them on a, the beginner prescription or some other, you know, beginner plant, like whatever, answer their questions in, in a way that's, uh, that you would respond to positively. Not don't tell them what to do and say, this is the rigid way that you have to do it just like you did. But it, 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 it just leave it open for them to kind of play uh, an active role in their own sort of uh, path here. But I think, again, you're just creating what we're really trying to do is just create opportunity um, to the extent to the extent you can. Yeah. Even even small things like if you see someone, a guy huffing and puffing while he's waiting for some woman to finish using the squat rack, maybe just say to him, you know, maybe if you took a few steps back or did something else in the meantime, she will be done eventually. Uh, but don't make her feel like she shouldn't be there. Yeah. Similarly, if you're in the squat rack and you're, you know, and it's people are waiting just as a general rule, asking somebody if they want to work in is completely fine. (laughs) It's completely fine. You can ask, you know, uh, so, um, yeah, I think, I think that's very good. Uh, One question I didn't put on the outline, but I think I want to get your take on this just because, um, again, I think we're getting our audience is growing. And I think this is just an interesting perspective as a bona fide subject matter expert in this field and a woman, you feel like you felt any like unique challenges trying to not, I don't want to necessarily say assert yourself, but the, the whole thing is this, like, look, when we look at your academic pedigree, it's very good. We look at your practical pedigree also very good. Right. So like on paper and, and then again, based on it and what you've actually done, your expertise would be, wouldn't be questioned. You know, and you would just have this sort of cachet. Do you feel like you felt any unique challenges just as being a woman in this space, or how's that gone for you? I would say yes, but I also kind of wonder how much of that is external and how much of it is my own self limiting beliefs about what I've been taught growing up about women are, you know, less influential, they have less to offer. And so I think it's actually both. Um, but I, I do think that. Um, over the years, I have, it's felt like an uphill battle trying to gain respect in general as a fitness professional in the industry. Now, um, I have noticed that the the more credentials that I have and the more followers that I gain, and even though in a way it's like, it's kind of gross that it's like this, but it helps. It absolutely helps in people taking you more seriously. And so I've always been very careful about how I present myself, um, 
as much as possible, I'm like, it's very important that you present yourself as an authority figure. And, you know, it's, it's not always been smooth sailing for me, but knowing that I'm like, okay, you have to be a good speaker. You have to be articulate, right? Uh, When you speak, you should speak with confidence, things like that. And these are things that I think at least always subconsciously, it's been in the back of my mind. And, um, there are there have been times where 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 I talk about a given topic on social media, like here's an educational post for today, and maybe I'll feel like, is this person mansplaining me right now? Like there's there's some of that dynamic a little bit. Like there's a lot of um a lot of times where men will come around and be very condescending, and um, they'll mention something about like my being a woman, and therefore I know less or something like that, or I'm automatically less qualified because I'm not a man. Happens all the time. In fact, there was a discussion uh, just earlier this week about this exact thing where uh, this this notion that women have to uh, work to earn their place at the table, whereas men are all kind of automatically offered a seat. Um, there's that notion very much in the fitness industry and I'm sure in just about every other industry as well. And I feel it and I see it all the time. Um, but I think I have been over the years, very, very consistent with producing quality content, um, really trying hard to be a voice for, for as a woman in the industry. And so, uh, I think, I would say for me, it's been going overall really, really well. And I am going to get pushback. That's honestly just part of it. Um, but I'm hoping that the more experience that I gain, the more I stick around, because it's been, you know, nine plus years I've been officially like a professional in this industry, which is, you know, a, a respectable length of time. Hopefully, I will feel, you know, less of that pushback and less of the dismissal. Uh, because I'm a woman. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. That's good. That's good. Uh, I like that. Uh, for all of our, uh, coaches to be aspiring coaches, particularly if they, if they are women, um, any parting shots you'd like to just put out there into the podcast verse, uh, to like kind of encourage them or, or give them advice going forward. Yeah. Well, I think the biggest thing, and it's not even, it's not a secret at all, but in because I am very observant of other people in the industry. I like keeping up with their like career trajectory, things like that. I notice patterns, and I definitely have noticed that the people who succeed over the long haul um, over people who fizzle out and burn out and like, quit career quit the career is simply that they are super consistent. They're very consistent, not only with um, so if you want to build a career primarily based online, then of course you have to be social posting on social media. So they're very consistent with posting on social media or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, But also they're very consistent in their values, right? It's not like, yes, you're allowed to change your mind and change your stance on certain topics, but overall the fundamental values that drive yourself as a professional, your career trajectory, is that always going to be the thing that's untouchable, that does not change? Like if integrity is one of your most important values, is that the thing that no matter what you do, you know, is, is, no one can touch that, right? You are known for this is a person with integrity. This is a person who stands up against injustice or does this or does that. Um, and then over time, you really become known for that thing. You know, like a lot, the the things I talk about, people know me for like behavior change, nutrition, myth busting, encouraging women to strength train. And that's all been extremely intentional on my part. And it's really paid off. So absolutely, just be super consistent with whatever it is you want to do. 
I love it. I love it. Sohi Lee, where can people find you online and interact with you? Yes. Okay. So I'm very easy to find because all my usernames are the same across everything. So Sohi Fit on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse. My my website is SoheFit.com. Uh, there's a contact form there too. So uh, everything is Sohi Fit. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Really enjoyed it. Of course. Thank you for having me on. All right, that's a wrap on episode 138 with Sohi Lee. Big thanks to her for joining us here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I've linked all of her contact info in the show notes below. Uh, Hey, before you leave, wherever you're getting this podcast from, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, and we appreciate all of your support. And we'll see you guys next week and every week here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you.